Well, great to be back with you after a week out in Alberta. We were in Banff, which at our, our uh, church's national conference out there, which was great. That was in Winnipeg last year, so they had to make up for it this year by putting it in Banff. Eric and I enjoyed that. John and Marcy were there as well. Julie Robinson, it was just a great time. It was exciting to hear about what God is doing in our family of churches. Uh, just regarding uh, church planting and equipping churches to make disciples. God is up to awesome things and I'm excited about where he's taking our family of churches. Got to hear from a lot of the missionaries that we support that are serving around the world, serving in Canada, lower mainland with the, the Arab community and the Persian community and just to hear how God is moving in awesome ways bringing people to him. And it was really exciting and I kind of hopefully brought some of that excitement uh, home with me and I'm excited about what God is doing here, what he's leading us into. In one month's time, at this exact moment, one month from now, this church is gonna be full of 175 kids plus helpers as VBS kicks off. That's our kids camp, okay? Now, last year we set a goal for 150 kids. We got 148 so remember I said there was one family with two kids that disobeyed God, and <laughs> you didn't tell me who it was. But uh, so we had set the goal for 150 kids again this year, and this last week, Angela and I were talking, we thought, this is crazy. God gave us 148 kids last year, and we're only setting the bar at 150. So we've upped our goal. We want to be a little more ambitious. Uh, we want to see God bring 175 kids from our community into this church because we believe that this is one of the greatest opportunities we have to reach into our community and build bridges with families in Stonewall, an area. I mean, this, this, this town is bursting at the seams with families. Our schools are bursting at the seams. This is a great opportunity to be the church in our community. We all have a part to play. I mean, I know you saw in your bulletin there's uh, a list of some needs, and if you can help out by being present and taking on a role during that week, Angela would love to hear from you. But even if you can't, we all have a role. At the Welcome Center, our registration forms. I mean, what would, I wonder what would happen if every person in our church, every family, took one and said, God... Who do you, who, who's there in my neighborhood on my street that I can invite to come and be a part of this? And you went, and every one of you put this in someone's hands. I just, I just wonder how many families we would see come into this church, and I wonder what could happen from that. So, my challenge to you is today, when you leave here at the Welcome Center, grab one of these forms and ask God, who is it uh, that you've put around me that I can invite uh, into this? That's gonna be um, a great week, a month from now. And next, uh, we're finishing up our series this morning. Next Sunday, Adult and Teen Challenge is gonna be in our services, taking the, the bulk of our services. Some young guys who are sharing their story of how God helped them overcome the power of addiction in their lives. Just gonna be some incredible stories. And so this is a great opportunity too. If you've got a friend or a family member, maybe someone who struggles with something like this, or someone you just wanna expose to the power of God, Great opportunity to invite them next Sunday to be here for that. That's gonna be a great morning. So we're finishing up this morning our series on worship. Uh, again, I wasn't here last Sunday. I heard Andrew had a lazy boy up here. And he sat on it and he watched sports highlights and ate Doritos. And I just wanna apologize on behalf of Andrew for that. It was highly inappropriate. I have reprimanded him. No, I'm okay. I'm just annoyed I didn't think of that first. Like, I, I, did, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could do that. So anyway, heard you did a great job last week. 
talking about rest as worship. So over these six weeks, we've been talking about worship. And my hope is that what, what we've done is we've expanded the scope of what we understand worship to be. That worship is much bigger than we thought. We often, uh, I think, have thought that worship is, is the praise of our lips. And it is that, but worship is so much more than that. We found out that worship really is the posture of our lives. Worship is a lifestyle. It's the way that we are to do everything. Worship really is expressing God's superior worth in, in whatever we do. And in everything we do, we can do it in such a way that it expresses the worth of God. True worship is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so this is what we've been talking about. This is what we took from our key uh, passage for the series, Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says true worship is all of life, offering our whole selves as holy to God. Now that word holy, and I've said it before, but we hear that word holy, and right away I think many of us think perfect. To be holy and to live holy lives does not mean to be perfect. It means to live purposefully. It's not perfect, it's purpose. The word holy literally means set apart for a special purpose. Our lives are to be offered to God as holy, which is to say our lives have been set apart for a special purpose in everything we do. And that purpose is to bring God glory in our lives, in everything. That is the purpose. I mean, the worst thing is to go through life with too small a purpose. What a sad thing. To go through life with too small a purpose with too small a vision of what life is. So Paul says the purpose of our lives is to, just to worship God in all that we do to show his worth. And he says we do that by being motivated by mercy. He says in view of God's mercy, this is the way to live. This is the way to do it. Mercy is key. It motivates our worship. We don't worship God, we don't strive to please him to try to earn his favor out of fear that we might fall short. We gotta try, we gotta strive. No, he says we're motivated by what God has already done for us, which Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about. He says in Romans chapter uh, eight, verses 14 and 15, he talks about this mercy. When he says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received from God brought about your adoption to sonship and by this Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. I love that. You know what the word Abba means? It's not a Swedish band. Not a Swedish, it's not a, okay? Abba, it's, it's the Aramaic word for, it's daddy. He has given you a spirit, so now the nature of your relationship is one in which you have been adopted by God, you've been brought into relationship with him, into his family, not because of anything you have done, but because of his love for you and what he's done for you through Jesus Christ. He's given you this invitation to belong to him and have his life that we receive through faith in his son, Jesus. And it's by that spirit that we can, we can just call, he is, he's, he's my daddy, right? 
This is our relationship. And so what Paul is saying is, is we're not motivated to do what we do to, 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 by, by fear of falling short. No. We worship God as a loving response to the love that we've already received from him, the perfect acceptance from our loving father. Worship is loving God in response to his love already given to us. And so everything we do is an act of worship. And so we've been looking at the various areas of life, what it looks like to worship in life. We began by talking about worshiping in relationships, what it means for parenting to be worship and marriage to be worship, what it means for rest to be worship and for work to be worship. And we're gonna end the series this morning by talking about money. Any amens? That didn't sound genuine. I'm not going to lie. I just, you know, I know you think pastors love to talk about money. Pastors do not love to talk about money. This is why we almost never do. In fact, I, I went back to do the stats. An average of once a year, okay, that's 2% of Sundays, we talk about money. And, and we're scared to talk about money because we don't want to give anyone the impression that the church is just after your money because some people actually think that. And, and, you know, we're afraid that maybe there's someone here for the first time and it's just going to confirm all the suspicions they had. The church is just after your money. And it's not that at all. I mean, what we, we need to know is Jesus never shied away from this. In fact, Jesus talked more about money than he talked about anything else. 15% of Jesus' teaching was about our relationship with money and our possessions. He talked more about that than he talked about faith and prayer combined. He talked more about that than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Over 2,000 verses in the scriptures talk about our relationship with money. So, so if, if, if you wonder, is the Bible about God, spirituality, worship? Exactly. Exactly. That's why Jesus cares so much about how we relate to our money and our possessions. So we don't, we don't talk about it because the church wants your money, but because God wants your heart. That's why Jesus is concerned about this. God wants your heart. God wants uh, you to have the benefit of having the right God on the throne of your life. The benefit and the blessings of having the right God. Jesus loves us too much just to tiptoe around sensitive issues. And so we don't tiptoe, we don't want to tiptoe around them either. He kind of hit it uh, just head on here. Matthew chapter six, we're gonna look at these verses, then we're gonna flip over to Luke 12, where Luke records the same teaching of Jesus, but he adds one little extra story that Jesus told. So these are the words of Jesus. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now that word healthy literally means single, one. And unhealthy means double. So those of you that have glasses, you needed glasses because your eyes were double. You had like double vision and everything gets blurry and you can't go through life like that. He says, if your eyes are healthy, single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are double, which is looking in two different directions, focused on two different things, your whole body is gonna be full of darkness. You won't be able to live life well. And then he goes on to say, 
this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So when Jesus wants to identify the main rival for lordship in our life, the main rival for God in our heart, he identifies money as the main rival. That was true back then, and I'm pretty sure it's true today. The number one counterfeit God that we can have is the false god of money. That's why he talks about it so much. Essentially, he's saying here, you will either worship money or you will worship God with your money. There's really no middle ground. You're gonna either worship money, and we all know people who do. Maybe we are people that kind of do. Maybe we are people that are tempted to. You either worship money, which is bad for us in all sorts of ways, or Jesus says you will worship God with your money. So this is what we want to explore. What does it look like to worship God with our money, with our possessions? Either your money will own you or God will own your money, Jesus says. So Martin Luther, he spoke of three conversions every Christian goes through. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and then the conversion of the wallet. Uh, He says that's the direction it goes. God gets your head, he gets your heart, and then he's gotta get your, your wallet because lips can lie, but you know what doesn't lie? Your bank account don't lie. Your bank statement doesn't lie. If you were to look at your bank statement, if you were to look at it and assess it, you would be able probably to identify what had your heart. If someone else were to look at your bank statement, probably tell them a lot about what had your heart. Our lips can lie, but but our bank account never does. So I know some of you are thinking, man, I I hope the rich people in the room are listening this morning. Because I know there's some rich people here. I mean, I ain't one of those. I don't have any money. But pastor, you preach to those people. They need to hear this message. Well, two things I'd like to say to you. Uh, no, a, no one thinks they're, nobody thinks they're rich. Statistically, this is true. In fact, they found statistically, everyone thinks you, um, to be rich, you have to have twice as much as you actually have. So if, you, if so someone makes 25,000 a year, they would say if you, have 50, if you make $50,000 a year, you're rich. So some of you, you make 50,000. Do, do you feel rich? Yes, someone has 50,000. How much do you need to be rich? 100,000 a year. And you ask that person, 100,000, 200,000 a year. And it just keeps going up, even into the millions. People that make $2 million a year don't think they're rich. It's people that make $4 million that are rich. Nobody thinks they're rich, but, but here's the truth. You're richer than you think. Right? I mean, hey. I'm like, all of a sudden I heard all this chatter and I'm like, is my fly down? Like actually kind of. (laughs) This sermon brought to you by Scotiabank. You're richer than you think. (laughs) Uh, They got nothing on Jesus. Mm. Um, Yeah, so where was I? Yeah, you're richer than you think. In fact, if you have a roof over your head, if you have a car in your driveway, if you have food in your fridge, and if you have a, a, a bed to sleep in, you are like top one. You heard of the one percenters? Welcome to the one percent. Pretty much that's us. And we might not feel it, and maybe part of why we don't feel it is because 
Um, our assumption has been that everything we have is for our consumption. And so part of our problems are, are of our own making, not all of them. Maybe some of us are just living too large. I don't know. Whether you feel rich or not, I mean, we're pretty much all at this point in time and history and place in that top 1%. So you're richer than you think. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, the problem isn't having money. The problem is loving money. Because some of you, you maybe don't have money. All, all you see are minuses in front of numbers. You gotta listen too, because the problem, Jesus says, isn't having money. The problem is loving money. In fact, uh, Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, those who want to get rich, that is those people that don't got the money, but boy, they'd like to have that money. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He goes on to say a few verses later, 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to, be, to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So he talks to both the rich and the wannabe rich there. Uh, and, and what you see is, the prob God never comes down hard on people that are rich or have money. He comes down hard on people that are bad at being rich. He wants us to be good at being rich if we're gonna be rich. And he says the problem isn't having money, it's loving money, and, and so we've often heard that quote, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not what it says. What did it say? Love of money is the root of all evil. This is a heart issue. This is a worship issue. Some of us are consumed with trusting in the money we do have, and some of us are consumed in trusting in the money that we hope to have, strive to have. Either way, money isn't a problem, it's worshiping money. Jesus shows us this when he tells us this little story in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, verses 13. Now someone in the crowd comes to Jesus, says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so here's a guy that maybe didn't have, that wanted, that was looking for money as his hope, the solution to his problems. Jesus replied, man, who appointed you to be a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he goes on to tell this parable. He says, the ground of a rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain and then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus concludes by saying, this is how it will be for or whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Notice the, all the pronouns this guy that Jesus is talking about uses. The word I is all over this. You know? 
Verse 17 there near the beginning. He thought to himself, what shall I do? Ah, this is what I will do. I will do this and I will do that. And here he is, he's talking to himself. I've always found this is kind of interesting. You know, over the years, I've had um, people call, whether it's because I'm pastor or just friends, and, and ask for, for prayer, for help. You know what, this is going through my life. I find myself in this position where I have this big need, this financial need. Can you pray and ask that God would provide what I need? I'm in this bad position. And that's great to call on God to pray and, and to meet your needs. But you know the call I've never got in 12 years of being a pastor? I've never had anyone call me and go, Pastor, I got a problem. I have more than I need. What should I do with it? Can you pray for me? And ask God what I should do? You ever done that? I, I've never got that call. I don't know that I've, to be honest, I don't know that I've ever done that myself much. Isn't it funny, like, when we have a need, we call on God, but when we have maybe more than we need, we talk like this guy to ourselves. What should I do? Why is that? Why does this guy talk to himself? Well, I, I think it's because he really thinks that he owns what he has. I mean, he's got this crop. Um, he's going to build these barns to store his stuff. He doesn't even think of any other possibility than that because this guy is an owner. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that we are not owners of what we have. There's, uh, I guess, kind of coming out of this text, there's three things that I want to show us that worship of God with our money is. And the first thing is this, we worship God with our money when we see ourselves as stewards, not owners. Not the word steward is one of those old-fashioned words that means manager. Taking care of something, have been entrusted with the responsibility of care for something that belongs to another. That's a steward. We worship God with our money when we see ourselves not as owners, but as stewards. You see, this guy saw himself as, as an owner. This was his, but Jesus is, is trying to show us that everything that we have has been given to us by God, and we are not owners of it. We are stewards. We are managers of what God has put into our hands. You'll never be an owner of money. I mean, in fact, you will only ever be a steward of money or you'll be a slave of money. No one's gonna be an Owner of it. I mean, either, either, either money will own you or God will own your money. God calls this, this greed, this man exhibits, foolish. There in, uh, in verse 20, he said, uh, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you and you will get, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? In other words, you think you own it, but you can't keep it. I, I, I was, it's gonna be taken from you. You can't keep it. I was talking this week with uh, someone who, who was standing by their parents' bedside holding their hand as they slipped out of this world this week. Parent died. And, and she was telling me as she, as she was standing by her parents' bedside, um, just this overwhelming sense came over her that all the stuff that we like strive for in this life, the accumulation of possessions and all that, it doesn't matter. It's not important. 
And she was just kind of overcome with this sense when she was in that moment that all that stuff doesn't matter. It's not important. This is what Jesus uh, says when, when uh, he said, do not store for yourself treasures in, in, on earth where moth and rust are destroyed and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where it, it will not be lost. It cannot be lost. Jesus says, you can't keep it, but through generosity, you can convert it into treasure that will last forever. We worship God with our money when we see ourselves as stewards, not owners. Well, how do you see yourself? I guess that would be a question you have to answer. Do we think of ourselves as owners of our stuff that are responsible to only to ourselves? Or do we see ourselves as stewards and we are responsible to God? And so we gotta ask God the question. Not, not I thought to myself, what should I do? But I ask God, God, what should I do? You've given this to me. You've entrusted it to me. It's yours. What do you want me to do? Jesus is saying that's the right question. We, secondly, we worship God when our, uh, with our money when we find our security in God and not in our money. Um, so he's talked about greed, being on guard against greed. Now Jesus is going to identify the root of greed. Where does greed come from? He says it comes from the, the root of worry. Do you worry? Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Then skip down to verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after. That word runs means just this intensity. They are pursuing, they are gathering, they are clinging, they are accumulating, and they are hoarding. Why? Because they're worried. They're worried about the future. They're worried about the uncertainty of all the things that could happen to them and that causes them to run after to secure themselves and their future. They're worried that might not have enough and so they run after this. But he says, the world runs after all these things but your heavenly father knows that you need them. He's saying your God knows exactly what it is you need. You don't control the future. That's uncertain but God controls the future. All things belong to him and he knows what you need and he cares for you. It says in Proverbs 18, 11, that the, the rich imagine their wealth a wall too high to scale. Okay, the rich imagine, imagine their wealth is a wall too high to scale. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they are safe. So he's saying there's imaginary Security, and then there's real security. Real security, Jesus says, is found in God. He's the one that looks after us. He's the one that secures us. He's the one that takes care of our future. Finding our hope, our trust, our security in, in our stuff, in our wealth, and accumulating enough. A, it, it's never enough. Rockef was John Rockefeller? You know, Rockefeller Square, NBC, New York City, big magnate guy. He was asked, and he was like the richest man ever, just for inflation. And he was asked, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? He said, just a little bit more. So is his answer. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Because you know what? You never feel fully secure. You always need just a little bit more. 
Hope doesn't actually bring true security as much as people try to find it in that. They continue to worry. Worry has a grip on your heart when you try to find your hope in money. God says, I don't want you to worry. I don't want worry and fear to grip your heart. I want you to be free from that because your security is found perfectly in God who looks after you. And how do you break the grip of worry in your life? It's not just believing that God secures me. It's, it's believing it in such a way that, it, that I, I manifest that in the way I live. And so Jesus would say, generosity is the way that you, that you break the grip of worry in your heart. It's gen- that, that's how you counter that. That's the only way. Generosity breaks the grip of worry when you actually trust in God for your security because he's the only one who makes us secure. Everything we want money to do for us, God can do better. That's what Jesus is saying. Everything you want money to do for you, God can do better. God can do better. Generosity breaks that grip of worry. So so when Jesus said, uh, he said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is there your, remember how it ends? For your treasure is there your heart. It's interesting that, that he put it in that order. He didn't say where your heart is there your treasure will be. He said where you put your treasure that's where your heart's gonna be. In other words, you wanna move your heart? Move your money. The only way to change your heart is to move your money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Generosity then um, breaks that, that grip of worry and fear in our life and causes us to find our security in God, the only one who makes us secure. Thirdly, We worship God with our money when we use it to build God's kingdom. Now here's this well-known verse, continuing in verse 31. Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom. Now in in Matthew's gospel, he adds the word first, which is is implied here in, in Luke's gospel. But seek first his kingdom, and all these other things, all your other needs will be given to you as well. And then he says, do not be afraid, little flock. I love the way that Jesus talks to them. We're a little flock. Feel like a little flock? Feel like a little flock. You know, we live in this big bad world and there's wolves everywhere. There's dangers everywhere. We feel like a little flock. We feel weak. And he, he says, little flock, I know you feel weak. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you have this big God. You have this father who's looking out after you. This father, your God, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He has brought you into his kingdom you belong to him now, and he has now entrusted you with, with his kingdom. Being about building his kingdom, doing his work in the world. He says, that's our first priority, Jesus says. God will take care of the rest. Make your first priority the building of God's kingdom, because that's what he's given to you. And there ain't nothing more important than that. Everything else passes away. Everything. But people. I, I was reminded of a story this last week um, I came across in the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories, it comes from 2 Kings chapter 7. It's about the city in Israel called Samaria. And this enemy force, the Amorites, came and they surrounded the city and they besieged it, which means they cut it off to starve it. They were just going to let the people starve to death. 
and they were starving. They were at that breaking point. And there were four lepers who lived just outside the city wall. And because they were lepers, they couldn't be inside the community. So they were in a real pickle. They're starving too. What do we do? If we go into the city to try to find food, they're going to kill us. We're lepers. If we stay here, we're just going to starve. The only other option is to maybe just walk into the enemy camp and see if they might just find mercy on us against all odds and give us food. So they decided, well, they're just going to die here. So they wander towards the enemy's camp, and when they get there, they find that it's been totally deserted. The story tells us that God had caused the army to, to hear the sound in their ears of a big uh, approaching army. They thought the Egyptians were coming. The Israelites had hired the Egyptians to come against them, and they fled in a moment. They left everything, like their pizza pops were still steaming. <laughs> Can you imagine life before pizza pops? Would you even want to live before pizza pops? So good for you, too. So good for you. I mean, the food was still there on the plates and the kettles. Like, it was, they had just abandoned everything. These four lepers who are about to die, no hope in the world. They stumble upon this. They can't believe their good fortune. They start gorging themselves on all this luxurious food. They start hoarding all the wealth. We're told they start digging holes, these four lepers. They start putting all these things in holes uh, to hide it for themselves. And after a little while, one of them says, God, This isn't right. There's a whole city back there starving to death. This is a day of good news, it says. Now that word good news is gospel, literally the word gospel. This is a day of gospel, which tells you that story isn't just about that story. That story is about Jesus Christ and the church. This is a day of good news. We cannot keep this to ourselves. And so then they go back and they tell the others and everyone eats and they are saved. And that's a really cool story. But it's really a story about us. We live in a day of good news, right? We have experienced, we, we experience the riches of God's kingdom. There are no greater riches. I mean, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, he says, you know the grace of God. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you who are poor might become rich. Jesus has made you so rich. This inherited like the promise and the protection and the provision of God and what you have, the, the certainty of the inheritance that lies ahead of you. An inheritance that can't, perish, spoil, or fade. You are so rich, church, in God, in Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, what we have in him. It is a day of good news. And this is what Jesus is saying. You have been given this, not just for yourselves. You have been given this so that you might use it to go and give the good news to others. Be about building my kingdom in the world. Seek first the kingdom of God. And as you do that, I'm gonna meet all your needs. But make that your number one priority, Jesus says. The gospel changes our priorities. It changes, it ought to change totally the way we look at money. And so, back in in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, Paul is talking about this church. I think it's the Macedonian church. He's talking about how this poor, persecuted church was pleading with Paul that they might have the privilege of giving more. And he's like, you've already given enough. You don't have a lot. You've already given enough. And and they're pleading, Paul, can we just give a little bit more? 
Have you ever pled to give more? I don't know. Have I ever pled to give more? Is it about what I have to do for God or is it about what I can do for God? I mean, that's my dream for my life. That's my dream for, for this church, that we might be that sort of church that, that, that doesn't accumulate, that doesn't hoard, that takes what God has given to us and, 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 and desires the privilege of going and building God's kingdom with it because that's what it's all about. That's why it's been put into our hands, first and foremost, according to Jesus. We worship God with our money when we use it first to build God's kingdom. We do that through generosity. Do that with our money. So how? I just, as, as in the last couple of minutes here, thinking about taking this home, that's maybe some of the motivation, the why. Okay, how now? I just want to suggest three things. Um, first of all, we need, we need to have considered giving. Remember that, that guy in the parable? He thought to himself, what should I do? And then he said to himself, oh, this is what I'll do. We need to actually not, we need to not talk to ourselves. We need to thoughtfully, prayerfully talk to God. God, this is what you've given me. What do you want me to do? Do you do that? Is your giving thoughtful? Is your giving prayerful? So this is the first thing. We need to have considered giving. We need to make a plan because everything that's important is planned. It's thought out. So that's the first thing I would encourage you to do. Consider. Secondly, consistent giving. That our giving, this sort of worshipful giving, kingdom building giving is regular systematic giving to God's work. Now, of course, many of you are aware that the, the, the Bible gives this, this giving principle called the tithe. The, the word tithe literally means 10%. Um, Eric and I tithe 10% of our gross income. And I don't say that to toot my own horn because I'm not as generous as I ought to be. Just to say... I, like, I, I don't just say these words. I really think this is important. And it can be hard, you know? Five people, one income. But this is important. We're to build God's kingdom. The tithe is, is 10% of, of the income. And, and God always instructs us to give the first because God is first. God is first. So he calls us to give the first of what he gives to us. Not, not the last, not, not to wait to see if there's enough at the end. When you give the first, what are you doing? You're saying, I trust you, God. When, I, when, I, when that first combine goes on and takes off the harvest, and you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. It might hail. It might destroy the rest of the crop. I don't know. When you give the first of what you get to God, it's your way of saying, I trust you. I'm not gonna wait to see if I have enough, and then if I have enough, I'm gonna give you a tip. Out of the excess it's like, I trust you. You are number one. So give, systematically, give the first. You know, we, we tend to think of, when it comes to giving, I think a lot of us might, might say, yeah, that's great, later. I'm not at that place in my life, just the circumstances of my life, right? Um, you know, I, I, I'm a paper, there's some teenagers here, maybe, you've, maybe you work at Pizza Hotline or, I was a paper boy. 
Well, I got to save for college. So giving's important, but I'll do it later. I got to save for college. I get to college. I'm going to get a career. I need to buy a house. You get ready to have a family, maybe get married. I'll, I'll give later. I get married, I got a house. I got kids now. They're going to need to go to college in not that many years. I'm going to save it. I'll give later. The kids are leaving the house. Thank God. Thank God. I'm just kidding, Annika. I just want you around a long time. She mows my grass. Man, retirement's not that far away. I really bear down on that. I'll give later. I'm retired now. I'm on a really tight, fixed income. Then I die. You know what later means? Later means never. That's what later always means. I... I uh, saw in a restaurant a big sign that said, free beer tomorrow. And you come back tomorrow for your free, what does it say? Free beer tomorrow. <laughs> Not that I'd be interested in that personally, but I'm just saying, I saw the sign. I thought, yeah, tomorrow never comes. Comes. So I wonder if some of us, we hear this, we see it's good, and there's a part of us that says, yeah, yes, Later. Later means never. You only have today. Be generous today. And you know, the great thing about percentage giving is everyone can be generous. Everyone can be generous, God. Doesn't matter how much you have, everyone can be generous. Everyone can make a difference. My daughter, Annika, who's 12, she hates it when I talk about her story, Annika. Um, She's an awesome kid. She's very responsible. If you want a babysitter, Annika's a great babysitter. Um, so when she makes money babysitting or whatever she needs to give 10% to the church that's what daddy says (laughs) I think she's okay with it but I'm trying to teach her why? is it because those 10 bucks make a big difference? well they help but it's because the time to do it is now if you don't do it now you'll do it never I mean I want to raise a kid who's invested in the kingdom who's going to raise kids that are invested in the kingdom. And so, I mean, if you've got kids and they're getting allowance and they're babysitting and they've got their little job, giving is important at that age because if they don't give when they make $15, they're not going to give when they make $150,000. Today is the day. We want to be kingdom builders. And, and geez, God says... Um, Remember in Malachi 3, there's only one time where, where, where God says, test me in this. Only once in the Bible where he says, test me, try me, see if I won't provide, see if I won't be faithful, see if I won't bless you. And where is it? Malachi 3, verse 10. Uh, when, when, when they're not being generous, they're not giving what they ought to give. And, then he, and, and, and God says, if you would give, what you, if you would tithe, if you would give what I have asked you to give, See if I wouldn't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so many blessings on you, your barns wouldn't even be able to hold it. Now, giving isn't a get-rich-quick scheme. What God is saying is, when you're about my work, I will be about providing for you. Don't fear. And boy, have I experienced that in life over the years. Because my parents, they taught me that young. I get 25 cents for allowance. Can you believe it? It's almost like child abuse. 25 cents. My kid's getting none. And 
Tithe, I gotta say, two and a half cents. I don't know how you make half a cent. Do you round up or do you round down? That's always been the perennial question, right? You round up or do you round down? God invites us. He says, test me. Be about this. Be generous. See, see how I wouldn't respond. See, and, and, and bless you in, in, in ways you would not, not have thought of. So, so, so consistent giving. All, all I'm saying is to make this real practical is when you consider you need, to, you need to actually commit to something. You need to, if this is important, you need to pick a percentage of what God has given you. Generous and sacrificial, you need to pick a percentage and be consistent in that to build God's kingdom. And then, and then lastly, just very briefly here, creative giving, sacrificial, uh, sacrifice something. Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. You know, we can be really creative in, 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 in giving. What has God entrusted to you that you can leverage and you can use to bless others, to be generous, to help others and to build his kingdom? What, what has God given you two of that you don't need two of, that you could sell one of and help another, right? What has God given you that you could make available to someone else for a purpose? What do you do that you don't need to do? Maybe you could sacrifice something and for the sake of of something more important. You might sacrifice this to do that. I mean, maybe it's Tim Horton's coffee. I mean, I, I spend two bucks every day on a Tim Horton's coffee. That's 60 bucks a month. I mean, I can afford it, but hey, I could put that 60 bucks to use over here if, if a need arises. I mean, is there, let's get creative in kingdom building. Is there something that maybe you can sacrifice or sell for the sake of something more significant? Because this is what I found in my own life. We find joy in what we sacrifice for. We find joy in what, we, we always think about what we're losing. We find joy in what we sacrifice for. That's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your money, your heart's gonna follow. Where do you want your heart to go? Where do you want your heart to go? We find joy in what we sacrifice for. Get creative in giving. What has God put into your hands that you can use to be generous, to bless others, uh, to do his work? And that's, that's a question, as we come to a close here, that I want to leave with you. We're going to have a moment of personal prayer before we, we close with some, some singing together. And, and last night, as I was finishing this message, and, and I was tired, I was a little bleary-eyed, I got to the bottom of the page, and I just, I was staring at that, and I thought, what, what's, what's the last word to give? And I just, I didn't know. So I was just kind of staring at the piece of paper. And, and so I thought, maybe I should ask God. God, what do, you, what do you want people to hear? Like, what's the last thing you want me to tell people? And so I prayed, and I just sat there and thought, and just kind of waited. And then, I don't know if it's, Anyway, he said, tell them, let it go. Now, then I thought afterwards, have I been listening to the like, Frozen soundtrack recently? Is that why this is in my mind? Let it go. I just got that out of my head last year. But I think what God wants us to, 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 to know is to let it go. Give God control. And, and I just kind of pictured open hands. opening our hands to what God has put in them and saying, God, it's not mine, it's yours. 
I don't grip it, I let it go. I give you control. What do you want me to do? Show me what to do. So I just want to give you a moment to, to pray right now. All of you personally, between you and God, just, just take a moment and, uh, I mean, don't pray it if it doesn't come from your heart. If, but take a moment and say, God, I am rich. I am rich in Jesus Christ. I am a steward. Just say to God, and, and, and if you just even want to open the palms of your hands and put them out in front of you or on your knees there, kind of on your lap. Take a moment and, and, and say, God, I let go. I give you control. It's not mine, it's yours. God, show me what to do with what you've put into my hands. Take a moment to ask him that. Lord, show me what to do. How can I worship you with my money, with my stuff? God, we love you. Um, You've been so generous with us. Wow. You've made us so rich through Jesus. You're with us, you are for us, our future is certain. We have this awesome inheritance waiting for us. We have true life. We have no reason to fear, we have no reason to worry. We are safe in you, and that's awesome. We thank you for the riches that are ours through your son Jesus, and we just wanna be rich towards you as, as Jesus asks us to be. We wanna be rich towards you, God. We wanna, we wanna use what you put into our hands to glorify your name, to worship you, to show those around us how much we think of you. And just show us, Lord, as, as we release control, we have open hands with the stuff you've put in them, Lord. Show us how we can use what you've entrusted to us uh, to worship you and to bring you glory, to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.